This episode is brought to you by Vanguard Wellness. Vanguard Wellness supports Canadian military veterans as they navigate their journey through psychedelic therapy to overcome PTSD and depression. I've personally gone through the treatment and I've had great success. As a veteran Vanguard, we can help those who suffer by providing education, guidance and support to ensure you have the most successful journey possible. Mental health isn't black and white, so why should your treatment be? Connect with us today at vanguardwellness.ca. Hi, I'm Trevor. And I'm Amy. Thank you for joining us on the Pathways to Healing podcast. Pathways to Healing is a podcast that showcases new and emerging therapies like psychedelic assisted therapy and other effective strategies that allow you to heal and live a more fulfilled life. Many of us have or will suffer from mental illness at some points in our lives. This is especially true in the veteran and first responder communities. From PTSD, depression, anxiety, and addiction, there are alternative therapies available. This is the Pathways to Healing podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Michael Verbora. Dr. Verbora is a true expert when it comes to both medical cannabis and ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. He was the chief medical officer at a large cannabis producer and has completed over 7,000 cannabinoid therapy consultations over the course of his career. He's considered a global expert in the field of cannabinoid therapy. Fast forward to today, he's now the medical director at Field Trip Health one of the growing number of ketamine clinics in Canada and around the world. We're thrilled to have such a forward-thinking doctor make the move to psychedelics. The future is bright because of doctors like him. In our conversation, Michael tells us the story of what inspired him to pursue less traditional areas of the medical profession. So I'm a uh, family doctor by training, Um, first doctor in the family and uh, grew up, um, you know, in a blue-collar town in Windsor with uh, blue-collar parents in the auto and casino industry there. Um, And very passionate Italian. So I have that kind of hot blood, I would say. And and I'm very, uh, sometimes a little bit righteous in in what needs to be done. Um, And and I struggled through um, my residency training with, you know, doing what was right for the patient versus doing what I was taught to do. And so this was a really, really big struggle for me. I felt, um, you know, those last two years of my training that I was banging my head against a wall. I just kept adjusting medication doses, changing prescription pills for my most complex patients. And I knew and they knew that it wasn't going to work. And I just kept going through the motions. I was like, this is crazy. I cannot do this for the next 60 years. Like, there's just no way that I'm going to be able to do this. And so about a couple of months before I graduated, I saw, um, you know, a big article in, in the newspaper saying the first cannabis clinic is, is here and it's coming. And I thought to myself, well, you know, in high school, I had many good experiences with cannabis. It was always a friendly drug for me. Um, it always helped me focus a little bit more with some of my perhaps ADHD. Um, and so I said, I'm going to go learn a little bit about this. And, um, It's interesting. My experience is very different than the knowledge that was taught to me in medical school training about cannabis. Like we only learned about the harms of cannabis, never the benefits. 
And uh, I went to this clinic and uh, started working with some of the doctors there just before I graduated. And I remember the very first patient was just a five-year-old boy. And I thought, this is crazy. This doctor's putting, you know, five-year-old boy on cannabis. Like this goes against everything I learned. Um, but then I talked to the parents and they told me that this child had a severe form of epilepsy and that they had tried like 10 pharmaceutical drugs. And one of them actually made him lose his peripheral vision. So he was actually going blind at five years old because of a drug side effect. And there's this ingredient called CBD that somehow managed to go reduce this child's seizures from like a hundred a month to like less than five. And he was meeting milestones and walking. And this is the very first patient I saw in the cannabis clinic. And I thought to myself, wow, I've done, this is my sixth year of training in medicine. And I haven't seen a story like this in a very long time. So dramatic and such a dramatic outcome. And so I was really blown away from that story. And then it was patient after patient with chronic pain who was saying, yeah, I reduced my opiates. I reduced my benzos. I'm able to sleep better. I'm not using my sleeping pills as much. I just started to think to myself, wow, this is very different than I was taught. Like, what do I, what do I do? Do I believe my experience or do I, how, how do I, you know, compare that to the knowledge that I was taught that this is such a bad drug? It doesn't make sense. So I went home, did my research and realized, wait a minute, this isn't the truth. Like the truth is, is far more complex. It's actually very, very safe medicine. And, you know, your oath is actually to do no harm. It's not to do best evidence that's taught to you and sponsored by drug manufacturers. And so that was kind of my waking up moment in medicine. Right before I graduated, I had plans to do certain things. And then I decided I'm going to go into this field of cannabis medicine. Um, and then, yeah, over the years, one thing kind of spiraled to another. I've been blessed to have treated over 7,000 patients with medical cannabis. I have about probably six or 700 pediatric patients now with epilepsy all across the province of Ontario that I help manage, uh, not just their epilepsy, but also children with autism and cancers. Um, and, and along that path, patients just opened my eyes to psychedelics and they started to say, Hey, like I have these cluster headaches and I'm microdosing psilocybin. And I brought that same curiosity that I did with cannabis to psychedelics. And I realized I'm going to go do my own research this time, um, and, and formulate my own opinion without biases. And when I was reading the literature that a single dose of some of these psychedelics was potentially curing people from diseases that we have no cures for. Um, that effect size was so dramatic that I knew I had to be a part of that. And I had to take what I learned in cannabis, which was being a patient advocate, um, you know, arguing for sensible policy, um, fighting for patients who were being discriminated against. I had to take that same energy that I spent the last seven years, you know, with my hot headed blooded in, in me, my Italian blood in me, take that and, and, and do the same thing with psychedelics and start to get that education and conversation out there about the healing potential of these medicines. Dr. Verbora got into the field of medical cannabis because he was frustrated by the lack of good treatment options. He questioned what he was taught in medical school because he was seeing many different outcomes than from his training. It's these type of experiences that's led Michael to becoming a patient advocate throughout his career. It seems far too common for people in the medical field to get tunnel vision when faced with information that's not in sync with what they've learned in school. Luckily, we have doctors like Michael who are pushing against the status quo, looking for breakthrough therapies. This is exactly what provoked him to make the move to joining one of the global leaders in ketamine therapy.
Yeah, so I joined Field Trip um, just about three years ago when it was when it was formulated, and it was you know started by a number of people in the cannabis industry who, you know, we we all went into cannabis because um, we had the expectations that this is really going to dramatically help people heal, um, and by, by and large, it does many many groups. Um, but some of the rituals and use patterns around cannabis aren't necessarily the most therapeutic. The the culture around how we consume cannabis. Um, doesn't invoke the same culture that we do with psychedelics, where we give a lot more intention with respect to mindset, and we give a lot more consideration of the setting that we consume the substances in. And that could just be a cultural phenomenon because we've been using cannabis for so long. Um, but nonetheless, the same people who were kind of in that industry, we we kind of partnered up and said, hey, like we can do this with uh, psychedelics. We can kind of bring some of the same ideas that we had with cannabis in terms of scaling clinics and providing access to patients, educating doctors and nurses and healthcare providers. We can kind of take that same experience and do it in psychedelics. So that was kind of the vision around Field Trip was how do we, you know, heal the sick and better the well was kind of our first mission. Um, and one of our missions and, and, you know, one of the, one of the philosophies we have is that, you know, you don't have to be sick to want to feel well. And that's a big issue in society is, is, um, you know, you almost need a diagnosis to kind of move through certain systems and that's not necessarily fair. Right. Um, but nonetheless, so we started to pursue psychedelics and we realized that, well, we can only really use ketamine today because it's really the only legal pharmaceutical drug that we can prescribe. But what we can do is start to get ahead of all these other molecules that are going to come out in for different conditions. And so we've built these beautiful state of the art centers. We have 12 now across North America, as well as one in Amsterdam, and what these centers are designed to do is to hold space for people using psychedelic medicines. So a vast majority of people get ketamine. We do have patients that get access to psilocybin. Um, we're part of research studies. So here in Toronto, I'm, I'm leading a, a site study here for um, MDMA for eating disorders. And uh, yeah, we're treating patients and measuring how they're doing and we're dramatically changing lives. Everyone gets down from time to time, and suffering, to some degree, will always be something we have to deal with. What we can do is work on developing a more positive relationship with suffering by looking at it as a necessary step for growth and positive change. Psychedelic therapy can be hard work because it brings up repressed memories, past experiences, and traumas. These can be challenging in the moment, but offer long-term healing when working with a therapist in the right setting. Imagine a future where people take a proactive approach to healing wounds as they happen in their lives, avoiding unnecessary suffering or a potential mental health crisis later in life. Broader access to psychedelic therapies will soon make this a possibility. In Canada, ketamine is currently legal with psychotherapy and you can find clinics in most major cities. It's showing good results in the area of depression, PTSD and other mental illnesses. To help us better understand how it works, we asked Michael to explain what ketamine is and the associated risks. So ketamine is a fascinating molecule. It was, you know, designed, let's say, about 60 years ago. And the whole intention around um, the invention on ketamine was that we wanted a safer anesthetic because the other anesthetics bring you towards death. So they lower your blood pressure, they lower your heart rate, uh, they lower your consciousness. And so you need an anesthetist uh, to keep you alive. Um, with ketamine, the beauty of it is, is um, it's so safe that it doesn't bring you towards death. It actually sustains your blood pressure or increases your blood pressure. Same with your heart rate. It can elevate it. 
So it's a far, far safer substance. You don't get sedated the same way you do on traditional anesthetic drugs. And so they called it the buddy drug in, in war because everybody would have like a, you know, a, a syringe of ketamine on them. And if somebody got injured, you'd, you'd be able to give them a dose of ketamine right away as a dissociative agent and painkiller. Um, over the years, what we learned is that it's super safe that we actually, it's probably the most popular um, anesthetic for children that we use. So every day in the emergency room, children um, get massive doses of ketamine far more than most of our patients get in our clinic setting and they do completely fine. Um, but along that path and journey, what we realized is, is that about 20 years ago that ketamine had antidepressive properties. And what was really unique about ketamine, it was really the only rapid antidepressant. So all our antidepressant options today take weeks and weeks to kick in. They're mildly better than placebo. Um, and sometimes you have to take another four to six weeks to titrate the dose up to get benefit. And so it can take patients three months maybe to get a marginal benefit with traditional options. And that's not really ideal, especially if you're really suffering or you have suicidal thoughts, like waiting three months when you're feeling suicidal feels like a burden, a massive one. So ketamine really is, is you know, the only rapid antidepressant that I know of that we have today, other than other psychedelics that we've come to learn, um, that we can legally prescribe easily. And it's super, super safe um, and it's super well tolerated. So less than 5% of patients who consume it, either IM or lozenge, which is the two main ways that we administer it, less than 5% will get side effects. And that's just nausea, which we can treat. Um, so getting rapid antidepressant effects, that's very well tolerated. It's very safe. The risk benefit of a drug like this is, is quite profound. Ketamine is one of the only therapies available today that offers rapid relief of depression. I think that's important for everyone to know. There are a lot of folks who are at their wits end, especially in the military and first responder communities that could benefit from ketamine. As acceptance grows, insurance plans are starting to cover treatments. Vanguard Wellness, working with Field Trip Health, has an excellent program to guide veterans through this process. I've personally experienced ketamine and I know how quickly it can improve your state of mind. It works in reducing your fear and pain, allowing you to feel good instantly. This relief goes a long way for someone who's been depressed for a long time. To help us better understand how the program works, we asked Michael to go over the process for new patients at Field Trip Health. We're in the traditional medical model, um, which I think is very much overdue for uh, its own innovation. Um, so nonetheless, within the model that we operate in, um, patients will typically get referrals to see one of our practitioners, which is usually a psychiatrist or, or a family doctor or a psychiatric nurse practitioner. And they'll have an assessment. And in that assessment, we're just making sure that this is the right therapy for them so that it's indicated. And then the more important thing is, is that there's no contraindication. So there's a small group of people that could potentially be harmed by psychedelics or ketamine. It's extremely, extremely small. It's people with severe psychotic disorders, schizophrenia, people who are manic, uh, if you're pregnant or breastfeeding, if you have an allergy to this medicine, or if you had a very recent head injury um, that has a lot of symptoms, those are kind of the major contraindications where we wouldn't recommend it. Um, after that process of being approved uh, for the medicine and having it uh, essentially scripted into the chart as an order, um, patients get to do preparatory sessions. So the most important thing about um, our program is that it's ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. So the drug is a catalyst for a psychotherapeutic breakthrough. It's not the main treatment. 
And so there's preparatory sessions with psychotherapy that take place before you get dosed. And that's to set your, your intentions on what you want to achieve and to work with somebody that you can build trust with so that you can feel comfortable talking about some of the difficult stuff that'll probably come up. Um, and then after that prep session, you come in for a dosing session with a, with a nurse practitioner or a doctor in the clinic who monitors you the whole time just to be extra safe. Knock on wood, we haven't had any adverse outcomes in tens of thousands of doses. Um, and then after that, we do what we call the magic, which is the integration work. It's the hard job. It's, it's trying to take the experience and make sense of it and integrate it into a day-to-day life. The key to psychedelic therapies is to work with a therapist you trust, one that can help integrate the knowledge from the experience into your daily life. Ketamine is fast-acting and offers quick relief, but for most patients, still needs around six sessions to get the full effect. This may seem like a big commitment, but when you think about it, it's still faster than antidepressants, which often take two weeks to months to achieve their full effect, and ketamine has fewer side effects. We definitely don't have all the answers and, and the, the elephant in the room around psychedelics and particularly ketamine is the durability of the drug. So who's going to do really well? How long is that benefit going to last and how many doses do they need? Um, so I would say that the best science today supports six doses for predominantly treatment resistant depression, but there's a lot of evidence that shows it helps with PTSD, that it helps with some substance use disorders, also helps with anxiety disorders. Um, you know, I think the whole model of like putting people in different mental health boxes is, is, is quite, you know, outdated already, but we're very slow to evolve in medicine. Um, but nonetheless, six is the best evidence. And, th- and that just comes from an ECT protocol. So electroconvulsive therapy, for whatever reason, is six sessions. And so the research done on ketamine was, hey, let's just copy ECT and see what happens. And so we don't know. No one's really studied just two or four sessions or eight or 10. Um, so we kind of approach it with, strongly recommending six. Most people will do a minimum of four. And sometimes people after four will say, I feel really good and I'm going to just stay here for a while. And then about 30 or 40% of people will come back for what we call booster or maintenance dosing. Um, For us doing the psychotherapeutic ketamine model, we find that that usually is three to six to nine months later. It's, It's just so variable. And I think the challenges, and we were discussing this today, is that everybody's baseline is so different and and their finishing line is also very different, right? You can have people who are really, really well and healthy, but they still want to push the boundaries of, of their consciousness and expand that. So they might want eight sessions to, to push themselves to a very high level of functioning. And you have other people who are just suffering every day and they just you know want to lift the boulder off their shoulders and that's it. That's their goal. And so the, the problem is, is everybody's baseline is different and everybody's goal is so different. So we just want to elevate everybody to a place where they function to, to their expectation. All these psychedelics have different, you know, pros and cons, and, and they allow you to go, diff, you know, deeper in different ways. And, and the work that you have to do is, is it's work no matter what. But the, what's nice about ketamine is it's short. It's about 45 minutes to an hour. It's mostly gentle. So it's mostly elevating consciousness. Uh, sometimes the other psychedelics are, they could be their own beasts, right? Where you, you got to overcome some darkness. And that's, and that's important too for, for, for growth as a human, right? And for, for your soul. But those can be really, really difficult that you have to be in the right state of mind to really do that work. You don't want to, you know, experience something that you have to process and not have the resources to be able to process it. And so those are like the, the psilocybin, I think, tends to, you need a lot more support system to do those types of substances, in my opinion.
It's clear that more research is needed. One of the issues slowing the process is that ketamine is considered off-label, meaning its original purpose is for anesthesia, so there isn't a financial incentive for pharmaceutical companies to invest money into the research. The burden rests on public systems, clinics, and patients to do the work. The good news is, at this point, the research is sufficient enough to conclude that the rapid effect of ketamine for depression is not in question. It's the fine-tuning of the treatment that will come later. On the topic of research, we know Dr. Verbora and his team at Fieldtrip Health have been doing some work with psilocybin and is part of a growing body of studies happening all over Canada. Since he's right in the middle of it, we asked Michael when he thinks psilocybin and MDMA therapies will be legal in Canada. I think MDMA will be the first one approved probably in 12 to 24 months. It's going through some challenges because of the research. Um, unfortunately, some of the people doing the research have cut corners um, and that can happen with any drug. And, and um, you know, we're very, most people in this field are very excited about the potential of, of these substances and how they can heal. But it's really important that we stick to you know, rigorous protocols. And when we cut corners, that, that slows down the industry. So Health Canada has actually temporarily paused MDMA studies and they're doing like a review. Um, and then there's sadly some people who, um, and this is a historical problem with, with psychedelics and, and other substances and, and medicine in general is, um, you know, people are in a position of power when they're sitting for people and they're under the influence of a substance that changes consciousness and people have exploited that power. And um, that's the elephant in the room as well is um, there are some people who you know, use psychedelics for their own personal gain on other pe on other people and take advantage of that situation. And that's very, very traumatizing. So those are kind of like the big issues that we face right now in the research landscape um, that are being investigated and uh, worked out. Um, now, despite that, that's the negative side of it. Despite that, um, the positives are is all the studies coming out are showing that, you know, as much as 80% of people, for example, with PTSD and MDMA, uh, no longer qualify for PTSD based on DSM-5 criteria, uh, you know, six months after dosing, which is remarkable. And what we don't realize is for PTSD, all we did was say, okay, if we use antidepressants for depression and we use them for anxiety, we might as well just use them for PTSD, right? So on-label PTSD treatment, I don't know what is on-label. There's no like treatment for PTSD, maybe other than EMDR and certain types of therapies, um, so everything is kind of off-label for PTSD. It's your own real journey. And the problem with our current approach um, with pharmaceutical drugs, it's, it's just suppressing everything. And what it's doing is saying, okay, it's, it's such a hard, it's so difficult for you to cope. So we're just going to lower everything so you don't care as much. You're not going to care about the good things anymore. You're not going to care about the bad things. And maybe you can function better in that little tiny narrow band of existence. And what people realize after six months, they usually feel good for three to six months. Say, yeah, I feel a little bit better. Something's changing. They're perceiving it. They're sick and say like, well, shit, I'm not really happy. Like I can't even feel happy anymore either. And so then they start to think I have to try to find something else. And that's where these psychedelics come in because what they do is the opposite. It's not about burying the problems. It's about confronting it and bringing it to the surface and saying, this is buried inside your brain. It's like a muscle knot, but in your neural cortex, what we're saying is, is we got to loosen this knot and that's, you know, for your brain to breathe properly, we got to bring it to the surface. we got to metabolize it and digest it. So those are difficult experiences. Those are hard to do, but you need help with a therapist. And, but that's what allows people to kind of live again. And that's where MDMA, psilocybin, ketamine, and other uh, psychedelics are all going to come to the market. And, and I anticipate in five years, um, you know, we're going to know the best drug for the best conditions and have very good protocols to, to deliver these therapies to patients. One 
of the things that sets psychedelic therapy apart from the other treatments is in some cases, it can allow you to get to the heart of the problem very quickly, sometimes in one session. With biases and old programming in place, there is lots of work to be done to integrate psychedelics into broader society. The good news is that just one psychedelic session is capable of changing someone's mind. As people become more informed, the interest and demand will continue to increase, which will help to push medical access forward. Because of Michael's vast experience with cannabis, we switched gears for a bit and took the opportunity to ask him a few questions about the therapeutic benefits of cannabis therapy. Yeah, so after you go through this effect where you you learn a lot about cannabis, you think you know everything, you see more and more patients, you realize you know nothing. And then, you know, you go through these effects with, with all types of things, I feel like in, in most careers, but especially in medicine for me, it's my lived experience. And, and what I've learned... I could simplify how cannabis works is it just relaxes the sympathetic nervous system. And all we're doing is, is when we turn that fight or flight system off for an hour or two hours or five hours, your body says, Hey, I can start to heal some stuff. <laughs> like I can finally relax and heal. Cause I don't have to use all my resources to keep you anxious about the tiger. That's going to jump out of the bush right now. And that's how a lot of these, these psychedelics work too. They just, they just work more potently, right? And, and THC is a psychedelic medicine. <clears throat> and if you did it in the right setting and, and had the right mindset going into it, you can have a very mystical experience with THC, right? Um, and you ask Rastafarians who, who use it culturally and religiously, they have very mystical experiences with THC. I think the biggest issue with, with, with cannabis is that um, we don't like if you're inhaling it and you're getting, or you're using a big edible dose and, and you're, you're taking a potent THC dose. I think the problem is, is we don't bring to it that set and setting intention. And so I think that minimizes the impact of the drug. We look at it as like, oh, I'm just taking Advil. It's going to reduce my pain. I'm just taking CBD or I'm just taking THC. It's going to reduce my pain. But if you actually allow it to kind of kick in, you lie down on the floor, you do some meditation, you close your eyes, you do some body work. You'll start to see like you can really magnify the effects of THC if you're in a really good state of consciousness. Um, and that's kind of like probably the most potent way to use cannabis, I would say. Um, despite that, the vast, vast majority of people come in, in in a biomedical model because that's how we've been trained to think about health. And so what they are looking for is like, just give me a small dose that's going to take the edge off so I can function a little bit better. And there's nothing wrong with that. Cannabis is great at being an anti-inflammatory muscle relaxer, anti-anxiety. Um, but I think if we want to push cannabis to really help people heal at a deeper level, they should be using it with, with the consciousness kind of um, consideration like we do with psychedelics. And there's no reason why someone couldn't even come into one of our field trip clinics and use cannabis and sit in our chair and listen to our music because they would also have probably a much more deeper experience um, doing that than just consuming it on their own at home. It's interesting that Michael brings up using cannabis for psychedelic therapy. I recently attended a Dimensions retreat that used cannabis therapy in their program. I had a really great experience, and to be honest, I was really surprised at how well it worked. With the right amount of guided preparation and meditation, cannabis can be used to create different states of consciousness. So like other psychedelics, it helps us let go of patterns that no longer serve us and create new habits in line with our well-being. These types of ceremonies are becoming more popular because cannabis is legal in Canada. When I got out of the military in 2014, I was battling PTSD and chronic pain. At one point, I was on 22 pills a day and felt terrible. 
Once I started using cannabis, I was able to relax and feel good for the first time in a long time. This improved my quality of life and allowed me to focus on doing the deeper work, like talk and psychedelic therapy. What I found with PTSD is you usually need multiple strategies to heal. Since 2014, I've watched thousands of other veterans with PTSD and chronic pain make the switch from pharmaceuticals to cannabis and have great results. The way I would look at it is, is it's just kind of its mechanistic properties. So, so one is it's telling the immune system to suppress inflammation. So it's actually targeting pro, uh, like pre-inflammatory molecules. So you're not making as much inflammation. Um, so that's the anti-inflammatory effect. And if you follow kind of like the modern science of, of health and illness, it almost seems like, it, you know, inflammation is the cause of everything, right? From, from mental health to gut health to, to diseases, we're learning that like inflammation is the problem um, for everything to some degree. And so one is cannabis modulates inflammation in a positive way. Two is it actually tells the nervous system, particularly in the brain, it tells it to suppress certain neurotransmitters that cause pain. So that's modulating your serotonin, it's modulating your dopamine, it's, it's modulating your GABA molecules. And what it's doing is, is it's saying, hey, you can actually relax here. You don't have to feel as much pain or we're going to give your brain less of these chemicals so that you don't feel as much pain. And then the third point is a lot of people who take THC will say, it doesn't necessarily take the pain away, but it takes me away from the pain. So what it's doing is kind of like being that mild psychedelic. What it's doing is, is it's, it's allowing you to disconnect from your ordinary thoughts right? Your default mode network of operation. And what it's doing is it's shifting you to another place. What that does is it just gives you a break and just being aware that you have the, uh, whether it's a substance or the ability to take a break from how you feel is very, very therapeutic. And the more that people can learn to engage that part of their brain. So the more that they practice naturally, even without substances to take a break from what they're feeling or sensing through meditation, breath work, exercise, yoga, um, you know, ice baths, whatever it is for you that floats your boat. The more that you practice doing that, it's like a muscle. It starts to get better and better. And what happens is, is your, your neurochemistry changes and then you stay farther away from the pain. One of the treatments that works really well for chronic pain is CBD. Some CBD has only trace amounts of THC, which means you don't get high. We asked Michael how CBD works, and I was really surprised about his recommended dosage. I was certainly not taking enough, but I am now. Yeah, there's a lot of benefits to CBD. I think the biggest issue is the dose. Most people underdose it because CBD taking it in the you know hundreds of milligrams, where most of the most of the research is, is is quite expensive, right? So a lot of people kind of will take only twenty or forty milligrams and get very marginal benefits. Um, the other question is, is most CBD has a little bit of THC in it, one or two milligrams. So that's also contributing. Um, but CBD has its own mechanisms. It's also an anti-inflammatory. It also boosts an anandamide in your body, which is a THC-like molecule, which, which is, you know, we call the bliss molecule. So it boosts a little bit of that. Mind you, people don't typically get high or feel euphoric on it. Um, it's also a muscle relaxant. So it relaxes muscles and most of us carry stress and tension, you know, in our muscles or our jaw or wherever it may be. Um, and it's anti-anxiety, right? So again, it's that fight or flight response, which I, I think is really the biggest issue most of us face. We live in this hyper fast paced world where we're just being bombarded with information. And then we're trying to, you know, take our, our brains and try to make sense of all this information. And, and we live in an age where we can't even figure out what's truthful anymore. Um, 
you take all that and it just becomes so overwhelming. And then your sympathetic nervous system just ramps up and then your body can't heal. So all of these molecules, as well as, you know, natural things like breath work, they all kind of shift you into that parasympathetic tone. And it's when you learn to spend time in that relaxed state that your body can start to activate healing mechanisms naturally. While CBD is effective for chronic pain, the price of good quality product could be a barrier, but it's important to buy products from a licensed producer. With black market products, you really don't know what you're getting. It's also good to work with a professional to ensure you're maximizing the therapeutic value and minimizing the negative side effects. Speaking of downsides, we asked Michael what users need to be concerned about with cannabis. So I would divide that up into THC and CBD. So there's a, there's a WHO report, a World Health Organization report on CBD, which is a really good one. And they've done a lot of studies on it and they've looked at you know, the studies out there and they don't see any you know, long-term effects from CBD use. Um, you know, the biggest risk with CBD is if you're taking anti, uh, anti-epileptics, um, and that's really mostly clobazam. It's just a rare drug. Not a lot of people take it, just some children with really severe epilepsy. So there's some drug interaction there, but, you know, again, I've probably put, you know, six or 7,000 people on CBD and we haven't, you know, knock on wood had any, any issues and they've been on it for five plus years. Um, THC is a little bit different. I think, um, I think if you're consuming, you know, microdoses of THC, um, you're not overly rewarding the brain a lot and you're just getting, you know, functional benefits and you're using it as such. I don't anticipate there's going to be a lot of problems just because if you look at the overall properties, they seem to be pretty good, right? Anti-inflammatory, anti-anxiety, you know, anti-cancer, antifungal, antibacterial, the list goes on and on. Um, the biggest issue with THC, I think, is um, with any substance, it's, it's how you use it in the setting that you're in. So if you're rewarding the brain rapidly, which would be inhaling, um, and then you're not kind of doing the work, um, necessary to, to facilitate healing. then I think you're just creating a ritual and a habit that is self-propagating and it's might not be the best habits and routines. So I always tell people, if you're going to, you know, feel high or euphoric, like make sure you're in the right setting, you have the right intentions and you're going to make progress on something mentally, emotionally, physically. So whether it's, you know, getting on the floor and working out your hip because it's bothering you or whether it's sitting with a therapist and like working on a deep problem or it's closing your eyes and just breathing and feeling more connected. I always tell people if you're elevating your consciousness, you know, push it with the THC by, by doing something like that. Don't try not to just, you know, sit on a couch and then just go about your normal activities. You, you want to pair the relationship of reward and brain with, with the right activity, in my opinion. The difference between a recreational and a therapeutic trip usually comes down to your intention. When looking to get the most out of cannabis and other substances, like ketamine, psilocybin, or MDMA, the term set and setting are used to explain some of the things you should consider. The set, or mindset, as it's commonly referred to, is the mental state that a person brings to the experience. This can be your thoughts, feelings, and any expectations you have for the trip. Your physical health is also important because if you're not feeling well, these sensations may get amplified. The setting refers to the physical and social environment that the trip takes place in. An environment that provides a sense of safety and comfort is generally more likely to result in a pleasant experience. For people suffering from mental illnesses, set and setting are two critical components to think about when trying to achieve the best outcomes. Sadly, we've reached the end of our time with Michael, but before he left, we asked him if he wanted to share any last thoughts. The big thing I like to share is that uh, most people aren't aware that there's, you know, 
clinics out there that offer legal psychedelic therapy today. So most people have to go underground to access this or take it in their own hands. And what people should really be educated on, um, you know, whether it's veterans or just the general public is they need to know that there are practitioners like myself. Um, many of us are doing research in this field. Uh, many of us work in clinics where we can dose people with ketamine today safely. Um, ketamine is beautiful because if you're already on medications, you can safely take it. Um, whereas other drugs like psilocybin or um, MDMA, and actually I saw a case today where somebody was worried they had a uh, serotonin syndrome because they took psilocybin on their antidepressant, right? Because they did this all, you know, without getting help. And so, um, so, so, so ketamine really fits in really nicely right now with where we're at. It's a safe molecule; it can be used in a clinic and provide, you know, probably many of the same benefits that some of these other psychedelic drugs can do. And you can do that in a setting, and you can get coverage of of your therapy as well. Um, so it's just, I think, the important message is if you need help and and you're looking to do psychedelic substances, you might want to pursue a clinic and get professional help. We're definitely turning a new chapter in the mental health industry. And while we still have a long way to go, we've made so many great strides. The adoption for therapeutic access around the world is picking up momentum. And we should see more options become legal over the next five years. I know it's been said several times during this podcast, but it can't be stressed enough just how important it is to work with a trained therapist. Not everyone is a good candidate for psychedelic therapy, so it's important to work with someone who knows what they're doing. We also want to remind our audience that most psychedelic drugs are illegal in Canada. We've been talking about ketamine and cannabis. These are two of the legal options. If you're a veteran and you'd like more information on ketamine and cannabis therapy, please reach out to Vanguard Wellness 